So you've probably heard of the Inflation Reduction Act. It's the largest investment in clean energy ever made by the federal government here in the US with unprecedented funding to build out a low carbon grid. Within this historic law, there's a lesser known provision that aims to transform existing dirty infrastructure to serve the clean economy of the future. It's called the Energy Infrastructure Reinvestment Program or the Section 1706 program. And it gives the Department of Energy's Loan Programs Office authority to make up to $250 billion in low interest loans that could radically change the energy landscape and reinvest in energy communities. These are communities that have been historically affected by fossil fuels and other polluting resources. The program could be used to fund things like repurposing old coal plants and gas plants into clean energy projects, delivering benefits to communities while accelerating deployment by leveraging existing infrastructure and avoiding permitting challenges. It's a wonky sounding program with the potential to have massive, massive impact that we'll unpack on this episode. Welcome to Political Climate, a podcast on energy and environmental issues in America and around the world, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute and in partnership with Canary Media. I'm your host, as always, Julia Piper, and I'm joined today by my co-hosts, Brandon Hurlbutt and Shane Skelton. Brandon is a clean tech investor, founder of the government affairs firm Boundary Stone Partners and climate advocate. Shane is a policy advisor on energy, infrastructure, and environmental issues, also at Boundary Stone Partners, and our resident expert on all things Capitol Hill. In a moment, we'll also be joined by two guests, Alexander Bond, Deputy General Counsel for Climate and Clean Energy at the Edison Electric Institute, an association that represents all U.S. investor-owned utilities from all across the country, as well as Uday Varadarajan, a principal at the think tank RMI, which is formerly known as the Rocky Mountain Institute. Uday focuses on how to use cutting-edge data and financial policy and regulatory analysis to help drive a just transition to clean energy with a focus on carbon-free electricity. We'll be talking to them about the Energy Infrastructure Reinvestment Program, also known as the Section 1706 Program under the Inflation Reduction Act. And we'll discuss what it means for communities and the decarbonization of the American economy. A program called Section 1706 may not sound all that interesting, but it sure is exciting to have $250 billion in lending authority available to transition old, dirty energy infrastructure into the clean, safer infrastructure we need for the future. So without further delay, let's turn to this conversation. A decade ago, Californians started a climate action movement and launched MCE, the state's first community choice energy provider. Community choice providers empower local communities to make their own decisions about the source of their electricity. Today, MCE offers nearly 40 Bay Area communities almost twice as much renewable energy as the state average. The power of MCE is about more than clean energy. It's the power of people over profit. Learn more at mcecleanenergy.org. Support for Political Climate comes from Climate Positive, a podcast from Hannon Armstrong Sustainable Infrastructure, the first U.S. public company solely dedicated to investing in climate solutions. With the climate crisis surrounding us, it's easy to let defeatism and complacency creep in, but there's so much to be hopeful for. Climate Positive podcast features candid conversations with the leaders, innovators, and changemakers driving our climate positive future. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> 
Alexander and Uday, thank you so much for taking the time to be on Political Climate today. I'm excited to speak with both of you about this program. So we've been covering the Inflation Reduction Act since the very beginning here on the show, all the way through when we thought it might be completely dead, and then it finally passed. We all remember that roller coaster. And yet this piece of legislation is so hard and parts of it are so complex that we are still unpacking what it means, and I'm sure we'll continue to do so. So Today, we want to really focus on one specific provision in the law, the Energy Infrastructure Reinvestment Program, or Section 1706. Now, this is a section that gives the Department of Energy's Loan Program Office lending authority of up to $250 billion in low-interest loans to, quote, projects that retool, repower, repurpose, or replace energy infrastructure that has ceased operations or enable operating energy infrastructure to avoid, reduce, utilize, or sequester air pollutants or other anthropogenic emissions of greenhouse gases. That was a big mouthful, so I'd love for you to put it in simpler terms for us, maybe starting with you, Alex. Your organization, the Edison Electric Institute, or EEI, represents all of America's electric utilities, investor-owned electric utilities, which own a ton of energy infrastructure of all kinds of generating types. That includes gas, coal, clean energy, etc. And so your members will be major players in realizing the potential of this program. But first, explain to us what is the 1706 program and why is it important? Section 1706 is is a super interesting part of the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, and it's something that my members are are keenly aware of and and keenly interested in. And essentially what 1706 is, uh, is a significant expansion of DOE's Loan Program Office Authority under Title 17. And really what it can be is a way of funding, you know, for low-cost loans and really finding a way to fund the clean energy transition, both for existing units that might be retiring, new clean generation that needs to come on the system, and a whole lot of related issues that sort of come up as part of our ongoing clean energy transition. And so I, at EEI, uh, represent the investor-owned electric companies. You know, that is a, a really interesting new authority and a whole lot of new money from DOE that could go a long way towards addressing customer costs and really helping to boost our sector's transition uh, to cleaner energy economies. Now, Uday, could you jump in and tell us, you know, why this is different? What about this program did not exist before? Is it purely the dollar amount that we're really zeroing in on here? Or is it the way the program works? Yeah. Um, and I'm going to double click a little bit on what Alex was talking about. I mean, I think the loan program, the Department of Energy's loan program is well known for having taken risks on innovative technologies, doing things that were at the cutting edge. And sometimes it succeeded like Tesla, and sometimes it failed miserably like Solyndra. But it was really about financing innovation. And this program is actually trying to do something different in the sense that we've got to make a transition relatively fast if we're going to have a chance of addressing issues like climate change. And while the loan program was great at jumpstarting new things, we now have to take the giant built environment that we have, this very large system that we've built, and make a rapid transition of this system in under a decade to be a very, very low carbon system. And I would say that the electricity sector and the fossil energy system is at the heart of what needs to shift. And unlike anything else that government has done, this is a program that's built from the ground up to help make sure that this transition is one that addresses the needs of communities that are impacted and mitigates the costs 
on customers who might otherwise see costs go up, at least in the near term, as we make that transition. So this loan program is really targeted at making sure that this transition doesn't leave any communities behind and it doesn't leave customers on the hook so that you're actually able to make this transition smoothly. And it's a big program. I know it's only a cost of $5 billion, but we've got $250 billion in authority that is available to reduce these costs and to make sure that this transition actually works for communities and customers. And that's what I think is so exciting about it. It's very unlike anything we've done, uh, certainly in the energy space and maybe in sort of, you know, there's a lot of ways in which government sometimes leads us in a direction because we all have to move differently. We have to change in ways that we might not want. This is an example of how you might make that change work without having many of the negative consequences we've seen in other big shifts, uh, like, for instance, in base closure and the reduction of defense spending and the like in the 90s. We're hoping to do it better, and this is an example of how we can do it. One thing that I'll add to what Uday said there is that this is also a program, like he noted, the Title 17 programs had sort of been about jumpstarting innovation. This is a program that comes along when the sector has committed to moving forward with the clean energy transition. So so it's really working in concert with where a lot of the electric companies in the United States are going. From EEI, we have 50 companies or more that have pledged, you know, net zero goals at some point in like the 2050, 2040 range. So this really works in tandem with some of that built environment existing company corporate structure setup. And so that is a, it's a change from, from the DOE authority side, but it's also one that's coming, you know, we think at exactly the right time. Interesting. So I think I'm hearing you say that other Department of Energy programs like this would focus on innovation and new technologies that didn't exist before, whereas this program, the 1706 program, is accelerating the transition to cleaner energy and deployment of technologies that we already know work in the field and and complementing your industry's efforts to make that change. Which I'm curious to get your thoughts on, Brandon, because you are a former chief of staff at the Department of Energy, where you worked with the loan programs office. You oversaw billions of dollars of government investments, including in these innovative style breakthrough technologies. And now you work in clean energy investment from the private sector side, where I know you're focused in part on scaling existing technologies and really bringing those companies and solutions to the next level. So how do you think of a new program like this from the DOE? I have a deep history with the loan program office. I was on the investment committee and spent several hours a day on the fourth floor of the DOE in that office for years. So I'm a huge champion for it. Very proud of the portfolio that we developed. Uh, you mentioned you know, this new program that's a part of it. And what I'm wondering is, how do we tell investors that we're not crowding out private sector capital? Because when I was there, that was something that we tried to manage, but we were uh, using the sort of innovative technology requirements to show, look, we're going to catalyze entire new industries, which you both pointed out. But um, how do you answer that for investors that are looking at this right now? The easy answer to that, and it's a bit glib, is to say this is yes and, it's not instead of. You know, we are looking at a significant outlay of capital to support the clean energy transition. Uh, a lot of that will be us raising private capital. This is something that our industry does pretty well. I think we raise and spend like $140 billion annually or, or something in that neighborhood. This is on top of that to help us continue that transition and, and if anything, you know, move as quickly as we can to get there. This is also something that that goes towards, you know, in some iterations of this program, it could also help address some of the customer cost portion 
sort of of the ongoing transition and the customer costs from existing assets that need to come off of the system. Those are things where I think this is exactly the program to address those needs and is not taking the place of private capital formation. This is one of those things where we need a program to address these specific needs and we also need to raise private capital. So there's plenty of room in the pool. So come on in. I'll jump on the back of that with a couple of numbers. We think that the electric sector needs on the order of about $3 trillion in capital through 2035 to build just the solar and wind that needs to be built to address some of the energy needs, let alone capacity and other needs and system reliability needs. That $3 trillion is nearly double the capital that's currently invested in the electric system to date including transmission, distribution, and other features, and so unrecovered costs. There is an enormous amount of capital that needs to be deployed, and this $250 billion is intended to address some of the short-term frictions and costs that are largely going to be borne by customers that, in principle, would not be needed if we didn't need to move as rapidly. And that's really where the role of government is coming in. It is providing low-cost capital to address issues like these unrecovered costs for historically already early retirement of some assets that may not be as valuable given the transition that uh, that we're making. And we just want to make sure that those costs are not borne by customers and communities. And this is where there is really additional capital. This is catalytic capital that can make sure that that $3 trillion happens as fast as it needs to without having those negative implications on customers and, and communities. It's also something of an enabler, too, in the sense if we can address in the scenario when there's unaddressed balances, that's also something that if we can deal with it with this program, that frees up additional capital to raise to then deploy and earn a rate of return on clean energy investments and deployment. So I think that that's something that should be very attractive to the private capital universe as well. Shane, I know you have more of a Capitol Hill background, but what are you thinking? Over to you. I want to build a little bit on, on both of your answers to the last couple of questions. I, I am very, a uh, very limited exposure to LPO, but I do know in a lot of the, the work that I've done where companies are interested, that innovation requirement has obviously been a major hurdle. So I think you all talked quite a bit about um, why it, it's helpful for, for that to have been removed and how it won't crowd out private capital. But curious, what are you most excited about, each of you specifically, when you look at having all this funding available from LPO and the new authorities that LPO has, what are you looking at as this is the best opportunity available? And I really hope that the money flows in this direction. We've started to see that there are private sector entities, both utilities as well as non-utility entities, that are starting to think about how they reutilize existing fossil sites, operating and retired sites, to integrate in clean energy in a way that is gradual, that delivers a lot of the same services, but uses a diversity of both demand and supply side resources and includes a combination of development around in the communities nearby with sort of adequate clean energy to replace the resources that were once there. These gradual transition sites, uh, these opportunities to really bring together capital in innovative ways to pull together multiple technologies to take advantage of sites that maybe had hosted nothing but a coal plant for 50 years before it was retired and figure out what is the new set of things that is possible 
given the unusual infrastructure that is coming up that is now made available. It's not every day that you get gigawatt scale electricity, huge amounts of potentially water resources, rail infrastructure, all in the same place. And so for the future of the country and for the future of many industrial areas that have been previously in decline or hadn't really necessarily seen a future, there's a possibility for really attractive reuse of those sites that includes clean energy but isn't limited to clean energy that I'm really hoping to start to see some interesting applications around. Examples of what is effectively revitalization of maybe the rust belt in the United States and the possibility of onshoring manufacturing as well as building out clean energy. Having to see that combination happen in communities is what I'm really excited about. And I know that we've been in touch with companies that are excited about exactly that kind of opportunity. I'm hoping to see that become not just a a few near-term applications, but an avalanche of different opportunities that are going to be financed in principle by this program. I'll jump on with a a less on top of it answer than than Uday gave. Um, What what I think excites us the most, and me specifically, is the incredible amount of flexibility DOE has to come up with innovative and new approaches to deploying capital through this program. I think that the statute that you guys read earlier really does sort of show that there's a pretty wide breadth of potential applications for, you know, 1706 style funding. You know, one thing that we really would want to see out of this is because there's so many available options here that DOE be open to sort of innovative, exciting, a little bit outside the box approaches to this, but at the same time, create sort of likely use case scenarios for this money so that it's something that can move pretty quickly. So for us, that's, you know, creating templates almost for people to apply for this funding around, you know, refinancing debt around existing facilities uh, to allow that capital to free up to fund the energy transition, using low cost capital through the program to reinvest in clean energy, providing capital to aid in the deployment of like small modular nuclear reactors or other clean tech projects possibly using capital to invest in transmission line upgrades that will help build or enable all of those clean energy assets that Uday was referring to earlier, because, you know, we need to build the highways to get the electrons where they need to go. Um, and then the other sort of template that we're thinking through, and, and we're just in the beginning of thinking about all of these things, is just providing funding to new clean tech Uh, like carbon capture or hydrogen production that can really help us sort of develop and deploy dispatchable clean energy technology that will be critical to making sure that we can meet our mandate, which is not only clean, but also affordable and reliable over the course of this entire transition. To take a step back for a second, you know, why do we care about low cost of capital? And why do we care about it reaching this particular segment of the market? Can you maybe give us a little bit of a history lesson of why it's been tough to reach this sector? We know that private capital does have an important role to play, but is there something that's made it challenging for that portion of the market to participate here in the past? What's sort of the context in which this is is rolling out? One of the challenges with making a rapid transition like the one that we need in order to achieve for the utilities to achieve their net zero goals and in order to address climate is that we have a lot of assets on the system that have seen recent investment. For example, coal plants that have seen recent investment in pollution control equipment. They did that for good reason. We saved a lot of lives that way. But we also know that some of those assets can't keep producing electricity over the remaining life of the asset. About 80% of existing fossil plants are owned by utilities uh, like 
regulated utilities, cooperatives, municipal utilities, where their customers are effectively on the hook for investments that were made by the utility, which were approved by regulators or approved by uh, the co-op members. As a result, for example, when a plant shuts down early, like a fossil plant, the investment costs that were incurred in that plant that haven't yet been recovered in rates don't go away. You don't stop paying those costs. And in principle, the way that those costs are reflected in rates is as if those customers were paying off something like a mortgage, but with the cost of that mortgage, the interest, the effective interest rate being the cost of debt and equity. And that means that they're paying really pretty high effective interest rates on those old plants. And if those plants are retired, it really doesn't make a ton of sense for them to keep paying that for 10 or 20 more years because these are long-lived investments and they'll be paying them for a long time. The idea is that when you're trying to make a, a rapid transition, as we need to for climate purposes, for example, this capital can come in to essentially refinance that obligation. And that's beneficial for everyone involved. And it's a role that government can play, basically coming in and saying, okay, well, there was the, there was this obligation you had to your investors. You don't want to go back on that obligation because that's going to make it harder for you as a utility to raise the $3 trillion in capital that's going to be needed over the next uh, decade and a half to make the transition to clean energy. So that doesn't make any sense. But you don't want to raise rates on customers when their energy bills have just been spiking. And you sure as heck don't want to leave communities behind. And the idea is that government financing right now can play a role in mitigating these challenges by providing low-cost capital to take out at least some of this capital that was deployed historically in assets that may not be used uh, over, you know, in the same way because of the changes in the system and reduce that burden on customers and communities. So it's not really replacing the capital that is productive because what this allows the utilities, for instance, or the investors that had this capital invested in these old plants to do is to recycle that capital into the three trillion of clean investment that they want to put their money in anyway, because that's what investors want looking for. They're looking for their capital to go into the new clean stuff rather than being kept in the older stuff that uh, that either has been retired or needs to be retired soon. So this is an opportunity for stakeholders that government can play a role in catalyzing. And that's why it's something different than the role that private capital markets would prefer to have on a forward-looking basis. And that low cost of capital can make a huge difference in refinancing. It's like the government offering refinancing of a loan that might have been a 7 or 10% loan down to a 3 or 4% loan. It can make a huge difference in reducing the cost of this transition. Yeah, I also think there are a couple additional sort of context points that, that really build off of lo- a lot of what Uday said there, which is that you know energy costs are pretty fundamentally regressive. And, and like he noted, these are long-lived assets that customers will pay for through their energy bills. So finding ways to sort of limit that pinch point as we go forward is really an effective way of trying to not hit customers that might not be able to afford you know, every single part of the transition as well, right? And that that's something that we are trying to keep on top of. And that's something that state regulatory commissions keep on top of too, is trying to be very aggressive at finding ways to keep your energy bill down. And so that that is an important element of what we do is finding ways to save customers money and keep costs down it is sort of fundamental to the that regulated utility model. 
I think the other thing that's an important context point overarching for all of this is, you know, electric company planning horizons are really, really long. You know, our companies make decisions decadently, not quarterly. And that's sort of fundamentally a good thing, right? It's something that we look at, all right, what is the 2020s? What are the 2030s? What are the 2040s look like in terms of the energy mix? What's the infrastructure that we need to get there? What does that look like? How do we finance that? Where do things go? These are all really big, important questions that have long planning horizons for both sort of planning, permitting, and building assets. As a result of that, and just sort of fundamentally from how the capital formation of that works, you end up paying assets down a long time, and they have to be used and useful for sort of to get your rate of return through your utility commission. So without a program like this that makes that capitaling recycling concept that Uday talked about significantly harder, it's also something that really helps us address the fact that the sector is moving faster than we've ever moved before. And so trying to find ways, you know, we did make a lot of decisions in the 2000s and 2010s in response to regulatory pressures and other things that required investment in assets. So how do we find ways to have made smart, prudent investments, but also find ways that our customers are not paying for things that might not be in use anymore so that we can then recycle that capital. So really, it's filling an essential role in allowing us to sort of springboard forward. And, and that's really what this program is has the potential to do. It's really heartwarming to hear both of you and your support you know, for this program. Uh, we just had an election last week, and with Republicans in charge of the House, if they go down the same path they did previously and try to come up with fake scandals about the loan program, what are you going to do about that and other organizations? Maybe I can <clears throat> offer a bit of context on that. I was uh, lucky enough to have a whole lot of my emails on Solyndra go to a House committee on that and had an FBI deposition on that. You and me both, brother. <laughs> and, uh, and so, I, you know, my, my immediate thought is that, you know, I've been there, I've seen how that worked. And one of the really, you know, a couple of things here, one is this program isn't about research projects. It's about commercial technologies. And if I'll be very frank, if we look at the location of a lot of fossil assets are, where a lot of those retired assets are, they're not in blue states. They're not in blue cities. They're squarely in red states. They're in rural communities, a lot of them. Some of them are in, and we're excited about the ones in urban communities too. But this is a program that in principle can help a lot of communities that vote Republican. You think that will stop the Republicans from doing what they've done in the past? Well, you know, one, one signal, and let me just, you know, add this. I remember what happened in 2010. I remember Joe Manchin took the existing bill, uh, the cap and trade bill, that was the climate approach that was taken then, and shot it with a shotgun in an ad. I remember that the Tea Party movement had opposition to climate action uh, as its central plank. And I'm looking at what happened in this election, and I'm looking at what the issues that dominated were, and I saw this climate bill almost nowhere. And that's interesting. It's giving you a signal that maybe the approach that's been taken here may not be quite as polarizing and as easily polarizing as was taken previously. If you have folks in your community that are benefiting from a program, it makes it a little harder to use it as political football. Now, it's not to say that they haven't done this. We know, you know, expanding Medicaid is one of them, but 
this is a program that in principle can help a lot of communities create wealth in a way that is a bipartisan interest. And this particular program, I think, is intended to help communities that really haven't been able to participate so far in the clean energy revolution, haven't seen some of those benefits, and might be at risk from them. Removing this program does have significant risk for Republicans to attack in particular. If I had a perfect world, I would have loved to have seen this move forward in a bipartisan way from the very beginning. That's not quite what happened. But I hope that in spite of that, the program has real and meaningful benefits that are absolutely not partisan. And the hope is that that at least provides some material and meaningful protection politically for the program. It's something that you know we're hoping to make the case for on the merits. I have no control over what the messaging is going to be. And it's possible that this becomes political football if it uh, fails. But again, I think it's not innovative. You know, it's not focused on uh, science projects. It's focused on making a difference, moving capital, creating jobs, and creating clean energy in ways that reduce cost to customers. That's got to be the focus. And as long as the program stays focused, and we're going to be really making sure that it stays focused on achieving those goals with the projects that it finances, uh, then I think it's going to be a little harder to attack than Cylindra was. Political Climate is brought to you by MCE. MCE was California's first community choice energy provider. For more than 10 years, MCE has helped communities across the Bay Area source significantly more renewable energy than the state average. Nearly 40 communities are now a part of MCE, and together they're leading on climate action for a brighter future. But the power of MCE is about more than clean energy. It's the power of people over profit. It's community power. MCE's efforts on climate justice have helped vulnerable communities gain access to electric vehicles, energy storage, and energy savings. By building and buying more renewable energy, MCE puts the power back in your hands. We all deserve a fossil-free future that combats climate change and prioritizes energy equity. Learn more and take action at mcecleanenergy.org. Political Climate is brought to you by Climate Positive, a podcast produced by the pioneering climate investment firm Hannon Armstrong Sustainable Infrastructure. Hosted by Chad Reed, Gil Jenkins, and Hilary Langer, Climate Positive features in-depth conversations with a broad range of business leaders, authors, advocates, and policymakers who are committed to making a difference. Listen to Max Rodriguez, an attorney with Pollock Cohen, unpack the arguments that support the EPA's authority to regulate carbon emissions under the Clean Air Act, and what impact the language in the IRA may have in the ongoing legal battle. Or find out how Tim Brown, as CEO of Tradewater, scours the globe to aggregate potent gases and destroy them before they leak into the atmosphere. Climate Positive unpacks their guests' personal journeys while discussing the emerging energy and environmental trends that will drive us all toward a more just and sustainable future. Check it out and subscribe to Climate Positive wherever you get your podcasts. I don't want to comment on what a potential majority might or might not do or, or where they might spend their efforts. But with this program specifically, I think there are a couple of things to highlight that just how I, I see it potentially working to sort of address some concerns is that this is something that, that you have to apply for. You have to proactively apply, right? And and it's it's something, given how electric companies work, they're, you know, my members are deliberate 
they evaluate lots of different angles on almost everything. And often by law, they, you know, will model scenarios, they will look at costs and benefits, they will take it into account system changes and needs and economics and cost benefit and community impacts. And all of these are a variety of factors as they do resource planning for this decade and next. That is to say, there's a lot of work that goes in before, you know, a single thing is applied for or, you know, sort of a single bit of capital is moved around the board. That is to say, these are really long thought out decisions. And if someone is coming to a program like this to say, hey, this might be an interesting thing for us to do to finance, you know, a new transmission line or, you know, help with an unrecovered debt on a, you know, fossil asset or build new clean energy assets that will put people to work and reduce costs for customers in, you know, in a jurisdiction. These are really, really big calls that are not made lightly. So to me, that helps provide a measure of safety is probably the wrong word, but it provides a measure of assurance that these are things that people have really thought all the way through uh, in terms of them being a benefit, not only for the company uh, and for system reliability, but also for the customers themselves. And when that level of detail is required and, and that level of detail is demanded by our structure and, and by our companies, that, that really goes to show it's like, you know, if you're here asking for this program or applying for these funds, you thought through a lot of the different angles on this. And, and that means it's probably a really well thought out decision. I think politically, that's something that you go, not that you can't attack something like that, but it becomes a little more complex. If I can add one other point to that, uh, you know, it's not just that a utility trying to use this has to put that thought into it itself. It also needs to, in almost all cases, it will need to be approved by state-level regulators, and there will be a formal stakeholder process involved in taking advantage of this particular provision for regulated utilities. Something similar will need to be true for cooperatives and certainly for municipal utilities. It is not just a utility that can move on its own to take advantage of this. Uh, It will need to have and bring along a number of its key stakeholders to take advantage of this. And that you know, buttresses Alex's point. It, is, it needs to be well thought through by definition. Absolutely. And when our companies do their state-level policymaking, that, that is a state and a local conversation. So any use of this program would be sort of a fundamentally a, a federal, state, and local multi-level conversation uh, all happening in parallel with one another. And, you know, what we have found is that in rate cases or, you know, sort of any type of public utility commission kind of proceeding, these are successful when they are broad, well-defined, multi-stakeholder efforts where there has been a lot of coordination and work in advance so that there's sort of a no surprises process to that. So I, I think that also helps as well, just from a looking at this as, you know, not just something in isolation, but something that's going to move with the support of multiple groups if you get that far along in the process. Zooming out a little bit, I mean, I think what a lot of us spend our, our day-to-day life doing over the past several years is thinking about, you know, how do energy policies actually directly impact consumers? Um, in times of very high prices, obviously, it's always a political football about what can you do to bring energy prices down? Are you doing enough? Are you doing the right things? Are you doing the wrong things? Sometimes the answer is just that it's macroeconomic, but you know that's not a fun political answer. In this particular case, what specifically do you think this program will do? And I know we've talked about a lot of what it can do, but will it save consumers money at the end of the day? And what exact aspects of it, like how exactly is that going to be the case, if so? 
Yeah, just adding on, I think you mentioned this will help communities and, and reach people who are maybe more uh, burdened with higher energy costs. And I understand the larger point about lower cost of capital, making these projects broadly cheaper. What's the link there to people's real pocketbooks at the end of the day? Let's suppose that there is a coal plant that is scheduled for retirement in 2024. Now, that's an early retirement. It was already, it's baked in. Uh, This plant had pollution control equipment that was installed. There's about $600 million in pollution control equipment, let's say, that was supposed to uh, be paid off by customers over 20 years in bills. That means that they were paying for the capital costs of that pollution control equipment, $30 million a year to provide that capital back to customers and depreciation costs. And on top of that, on the order of about $50 million a year in return on and of capital. The net result is that they were paying about $80 million a year in capital costs. And is that through electricity rates or how is that being paid exactly? That's in electricity rates. That's right. So they were paying about $80 million a year in capital costs for the thing. The problem is if you retire that immediately, capital recovery usually has to happen faster because, and this is just how it's done. And often the net result is instead of, you know, if you retire the plant and replace it with clean energy, even if that clean energy was cheaper than operating that coal plant alone, uh, let's suppose with all of the incentives that we have in the IRA, that's possible. You still, as a customer, are on the hook for that $80 million a year, but it's worse than that because that $30 million in depreciation expenses probably jumps to $60 million. And instead of paying $80 million, you're suddenly paying $110 million for, this, uh, for the capital cost of the old plant and the renewable costs on top of that. That's not a great outcome. What this type of refinancing vehicle can do, EIR can do, is it does two things. One, you could use EIR to refinance that $600 million, pay it off over 30 years, not 20 years. You can pay it off at what might be a 4% interest rate. And the net result is you might be paying, instead of paying off uh, you know, what looks like $110 million a year early on, instead, your you know, annual payments may be closer to a total of about $20 million a year in amortizing that and about $30 million in interest. So about $50 million a year. Refinancing it just like you would a mortgage, taking that $600 million, paying it off at a lower effective interest rate over 30 years means you reduce that cost from what would have been $110 million to $50 million a year. So that's real savings immediately. But on top of that, some of the replacement energy and resources, uh, maybe you had transmission lines that you needed to upgrade. Maybe you had some other things that needed to be uh, done in the system. You can use this to offset and use some of the financing from EIR to reduce the total cost in rate base of some of the investments that needed to be made to make the clean energy work. And that's another savings, again, taking a similar type of savings that you get from using lower cost capital over a longer period of time to kind of defray some of those costs. And so that savings uh, can be compounded depending on how much of the ER that is used. And a utility and a regulator and customers can negotiate exactly how much, how big of the package. Let's suppose that they decide they're going to use a billion dollars in EIR for this transition. Then in addition to sort of offsetting that $600 million in uh, old coal plant costs, maybe they're offsetting some of the $3 billion in replacement costs by taking about $400 million of that cost and using this very low cost capital to finance that. That can, again, lead to additional savings beyond the uh, roughly $60 million in savings you got from just replacing the coal plant costs. 
Does that make sense? Uh, that's, a, that's an example of how you can sort of really use this practically to reduce the cost uh, of making that transition in a unique way. I think the refinancing of a mortgage is a nice comparison because we can all understand and appreciate when you reduce your interest rate, uh, you pay less out of pocket. And so being able to do that with the energy infrastructure that has served us for many years, but maybe time to transition helps save everybody money. Yeah, it's like refinancing your home and then using some of the proceeds of that to get yourself a new kitchen, right, in, in the process. But you're also going to continue to pay lower bills on a monthly basis. You know, the analogy is not perfect, but it, it's probably the best one that, that, that we can think of. I think the other version of this that we have seen with, with members running some of the numbers and really looking at this hard is the savings to customers over the life of the asset and over the next decade and beyond are really, really, really significant. Depending sort of on the use case and on the specific uh, examples, I mean, we're, we're talking in some cases, if you're retiring fossil assets, some of those are pretty large and pretty capital heavy um, with pretty big debt loads on them, given some of the, the the needed upgrades and assessments over the past couple decades. You could see, you know, up to a billion dollars in savings on one plant alone. Um, and that is real, honest to God savings that go to customers that help keep those bills down. And we're also seeing that in a world where fuel costs are rising and we have you know significant arrears from the COVID years and, and people struggling with payment. So keeping costs down is really essential to uh, you know making sure that we can recycle that capital and get to where we need to go on clean energy at the same time. So th- the potential numbers here are significant from this program and really what is I hesitate to say a small outlay because $5 billion is a lot of money. But in the overall context of the Inflation Reduction Act, that, that's sort of a, a very small slice of the spending here, but it could have a really big outsized impact. We can give you one other number. So we think there's, with about $250 billion in authority, if it was used for this kind of refinancing systematically, we estimate that it could save customers annually somewhere between 15 and $20 billion a year deployed. And that's with, as Alex put, an appropriation of just $5 billion. It could be an enormous savings, uh, especially coming at at a time like this one, where energy bills and costs are such a huge issue for people around the country, particularly those with uh, uh, the greatest energy burdens. Well, thank you both for walking us through the details of this program. I mean, it's one of those pieces that's one of many in the Inflation Reduction Act, but clearly will have a massive impact. And it really helps frame, I think, what it looks like to transition fossil fuel communities, energy communities into this new clean energy transition we're all and clean energy economy we're all trying to create here. And this is just one of the pathways to do that. And it sounds like a very influential one. So Alex, Uday, thank you both for your time. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Well, that's where we'll leave it for this episode of Political Climate. If you want to continue the conversation, be sure to check out our Twitter feed at poly, P-O-L-I underscore climate. You can also reach me at J.M. Piper, J-M-P-Y-P-E-R. Always happy to hear from our listeners. Thanks so much to our editor, Kyle McDonald, for editing this episode and to our producer, Maria Virginia Alano with Canary Media. Brandon and Shane, as always, hat tip to you. And special thank you to our guests who joined us this week. While you're here, check out our past episodes. We have a great library of content with some interviews that are still very much relevant today, from the impact of Russia's war on Ukraine and energy markets to what the outlook is for passing climate policy in 2023. So we hope you'll give those a listen. Signing off for now, I'm Julia Piper. Until soon.